0: Well good morning Bethel Church and friends, Uh, welcome to our Easter service and uh, thank you for joining us today again by just tuning into this uh, either by Facebook or uh, by our YouTube channel and uh, I would love to be able to stand here with you and do our customary greeting, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Uh, This year I've got both sides of that exercise but would you pray with me and uh, we'll ask for God's help as we study His Word and then I'll get right to my message so let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are attentive to your people. Uh, that you have love within uh, yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in love created us, uh, and created us for yourself to enjoy your beauty and your holiness and your glory. Thank you also that you concerned yourself for us uh, as we fell, as we plunged into sin and uh, and rebelled against you. Yet you did not leave us on our own, but you came after us in Jesus Christ. And you made a way that we could be saved and reconciled to you. So we rejoice, uh, Lord, uh, this Easter to remember not only the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus, but his resurrection and the hope that we have with it. So thank you uh, again, Father, for what you, for, for what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask for your help now as we look to your word. And we pray that it would be instructive for each of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn them to John chapter 20, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Every year as Easter approaches, my eyes and ears kind of perk up, and I start looking for my uh, sermon opener, if you will. And um, at Easter time, we typically have our largest audience, and we usually go over to Herring Auditorium, as you know. And it's just a different venue and a bigger group, and there are more guests, and I have just found over the years that it's best to have kind of an opener that we can all relate to, something about culture or just human experience, something that we can all uh, kind of share together and relate to. Uh, A number of years ago, I think it was back in 2011, I referred to the heroic crew in Fukushima who went into the nuclear reactor to sort of help contain the fallout there, and did so at great threat to themselves and uh, and I, I kind of drew a parallel. They were kind of like Christ in that, how they went into a situation to contain uh, the fallout and, and did it as an act of self-sacrifice. Last year was a little less noble. Uh, we talked about um, someone who was lost, uh, this poor poor figure named Roger. Uh, and of course, it was a dog who had wandered into our yard. And uh, usually this reference uh, is chosen, again, because there's sort of a common appeal it's something we all experience, something we can all relate to, something we're all aware of. So I wonder, wonder what I could refer to this year that we might all relate to, something we might all experience. Obviously, I didn't have to look that far this year as uh, we're all experiencing the effects of the coronavirus and isolating. In fact, probably the most common, commonly shared human experience right now on the planet is that we are hunkered down sheltering in place, feeling isolated, and feeling confined, and to one degree or another, navigating fear and uncertainty. Uh, You may have some fears of the virus itself. You may have some uncertainty about your job or your income. Uh, For many of you, there's been some kind of personal loss. Maybe there was a trip you had hoped to take or a visitor that was going to come. There were things you were going to do. Maybe there's uh, some family members you're distanced from because they would be at risk. Uh, For you seniors, you've lost your graduation and uh, maybe senior recitals and these kinds of things. And there's concern about the economy. And there's a lot of questions about what's life gonna look like after this. And as I've thought about some of these commonly shared feelings, this maybe fear, feeling locked up at home, feeling uncertain about the future, my mind just ran to this passage in John chapter 20, verse 19, and it begins with the words, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, friends, there, there are dozens of passages in the New Testament that talk about the resurrection of Jesus that, that I could go to. But for me, this scene, the scene of the disciples, scared, hunkered down, behind locked doors, just seemed especially pertinent to me for Easter 2020. And here's what I want to draw out of this passage this morning. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, fear is removed Peace is restored, forgiveness is offered, and reasonable faith is rewarded. Now, before we get going too far here, I want to just talk a little bit about the book of John and about the author, just to kind of get our bearings. The purpose of the gospel of John is to encourage belief. In fact, John is explicit about that in his gospel. In the same chapter that we're in, chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In fact, the word believe is mentioned 98 times in the Gospel of John. That's an average of about five per chapter. So believe is the overwhelming theme of the book. And so you might say that the Gospel of John is written to persuade those who are skeptical of Christianity, and to encourage Christians who may be struggling with their faith. And so in this way, the Gospel of John is a little bit different than the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we call them the synoptic Gospels. And what they have in common is that they, they write a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and they write really from the same perspective or the same view although they write with a little bit of differentiation as they write to different audiences. Matthew is a Jewish fellow, so as he talks about the life and ministry of Jesus, he really focuses on the prophecies that a Jewish community would have known and appreciated and would have seen fulfilled in Jesus. Mark is writing primarily to a Roman audience. And so he really focuses on the kingship of Christ and of his royalty and his coming kingdom. And Luke, who is a non-Jewish physician, he's a Gentile and writing to a Gentile audience, he really focuses on the compassion of Jesus for the marginalized and for those who are left out, overlooked in society. And he focuses on the power of Jesus, especially his miracles, Because he thinks that will be persuasive to his Gentile audience. So they tell the same story, but they're nuanced for their own audience. But John writes as an eyewitness account of the life and ministry, death and resurrection, with the primary purpose of encouraging belief. That's his strategy. Now let's get the context here for our passage. The passage picks up on Sunday evening. This is the day of the resurrection. And the Gospel of John tells us that earlier that morning, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb, and she expected to find uh, Jesus' crucified body. But when she arrives, she finds that the stone has been rolled away, and Jesus' body is not inside. So she runs to report uh, what she has found, and she reports this to the other disciples, Peter being one of them. And John, who identifies himself in the book of John as the one that Jesus loved, she tells these two disciples what she has found, and they run and they come to investigate. And they find not just an empty tomb, but they actually find grave clothes lying behind as well. After some time, uh, the two disciples leave, but Mary stays behind, and she's grieving, and she has two incredible encounters. Angels appear to her from within the tomb, And she actually encounters the risen Jesus outside in the garden. And uh, she has this amazing encounter with him, and Jesus tells her to go and tell the disciples. So she runs back home and reports, I have seen the Lord. So we'll pick up with, with, uh, with that. We'll pick up our passage in chapter 20, verse 19. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so what we see in this initial scene here is, Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Fear is removed. This is a very real human moment described to us in this passage. We can absolutely identify with the disciples, we can relate to their fear as they are locked behind these doors. Uh, They're gathered certainly for grief. Uh, This is something that would have pulled them together to grieve over this loss. Uh, But also when we look at the other Gospels, we find that there have been some other Jesus sightings. Uh, And so I kind of wonder if they're not also trying to figure this out and talk it out together. But nevertheless, their fear is understandable. The Jewish religious leaders had arrested Jesus. They had tried him. They had him executed. And these fellows are his followers. And so it's perfectly reasonable to assume that they're next on the hit list. In fact, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, the disciples who were with him ran away. In fact, one of them ran right out of his clothing when somebody seized him and tried to hold on to him. He ran right out of his clothes. So the door is locked. They're hunkered down, sheltering in place, if you will, and their fear is very reasonable given the circumstances. Now add to that the sudden appearance of Jesus. Notice that he, he didn't knock. He didn't unlock the door. It doesn't even say he came through the door. He didn't sneak in through a window. He simply appeared. And you can only imagine how startling that would be for someone to simply emerge into the room. Uh, I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of a a time when I was, uh, I think I was a sophomore in college down in Los Angeles. And one evening late, I was working at my my desk on my laptop, just typing away, dumb and happy. And unknown to me, uh, one of my friends had seen my light on. And so my friend very carefully and stealthily snuck through the ivy, below the bushes, right over to the bottom of the windowsill, and carefully pulled themselves up imperceptibly above the windowsill, which was about a foot away from me. And I remember just sitting there typing away, and I just had this feeling like there was another presence with me. Something else was happening. It was like someone was watching me, and as I looked over right here next to me, a foot away were a pair of eyeballs, and it scared me so much that I jumped I ran right out of my room. I ran down the hallway. I ran right through the crash door and set off the fire alarm and chased my giggling friend halfway across the campus. So Chad is buried in a small, unmarked grave in La Mirada, California, just so you know. So this was a startling moment for me, just suddenly seeing a pair of eyeballs right there looking at me. But for the disciples, this is a whole person emerging in a secured room. And then, of course, there's that thorny issue of the fact that this man was just killed three days earlier. So, what gives here? Well, the passage says that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So, as we've seen, their fear is understandable under the circumstances, but that Jesus shows them his hands and his side. In other words, he, he isn't a look-alike, He's not an imposter. He's not a ghost. These hands were really nailed, and this side was really pierced by a soldier's spear. This man, once dead, is now living in their presence. And by seeing his wounds, they begin to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. And as this becomes clear, increasingly so, they're overjoyed and their fear begins to subside and their belief eventually grows into bold witness. Friends, for me personally, this is one of the many compelling, maybe the most compelling evidence for the reliability of the resurrection. And that is the transformation of the disciples. They went from scared, running, cowering behind locked doors, disillusioned, doubting, thinking they had been wrong about Jesus, to eventually becoming unhindered, bold witnesses, they would devote their lives to proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead, and nearly each of them would die as a martyr for their belief. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what explains this radical transformation in the life of the disciples? And I believe it was the resurrection of Jesus, that facilitated that transformation now we may still have some questions and hold on to some skepticism about the resurrection but we should at least conclude that the disciples themselves were absolutely convinced so because of the resurrection fear is removed and because of the resurrection peace is restored now i don't want to make too much out of jesus's greeting here on one hand peace be with you is just kind of a customary greeting of the day. And it's still a popular greeting in the Middle East to today. But if you'll notice, Jesus repeats it. In fact, he says, Peace be with you, three times in these incidences here. Uh, it's almost like he lifts this sort of common greeting out of the day, out of the custom, and infuses it with new significance. Like it's not just a casual greeting, but actually a careful proclamation of something. Uh, You and I experience this all the time when you walk past somebody you know on the street or at Fred Meyer or at work, back when we used to do those kinds of things, and they say something like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? And the right answer or the expected answer to that question is fine, fine. Hey, I'm fine. They're not really asking, right? But then every now and then, somebody will kind of lean in and take some time and say, no, really, how are you doing? And you realize, oh, oh, we're not just acknowledging one another here. Like, you want to communicate. And it it seems like Jesus is doing the same kind of thing here. Peace be with you. No, really, guys. I've just accomplished something that should bring peace to you and to your lives. And so, friends, I want you to understand something. The crucifixion of Christ was not an unhappy accident. It was not unexpected. It was not an inconvenient detour in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said himself, even in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus regularly predicted his own death. And virtually without fail, when he spoke of his own death, he also spoke of his resurrection. But this doesn't just emanate from Jesus. We see in the book of Isaiah, 700 years prior to the time of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said, He is pierced for our transgressions. He was punished for our iniquities. Even John the Baptist, when Jesus kind of walked onto the scene early in the Gospel of John, announces him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the sacrificial death to pay for the sins of mankind was always the father's plan and it was always Jesus intention to fulfill this was no accident this was no surprise the death and resurrection were always Jesus mission so when he says peace be with you it's not like hey peace guys or peace out he's saying no, this is substantive. I've achieved peace for you. I've done what is necessary so that sinful man can be at peace with a holy God. And so while the initial mood here, here is fear, and the sudden emergence of Jesus is no doubt startling, the revelation of his pierced hands inside show who he really is. And you can only imagine the disciples standing there with all of these pictures and proclamations and prophecies just flooding into their minds, right? Isaiah's suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we have been healed. Or Jesus' own claim to be a sacrificial savior, one who lays down his life for our sake, In John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Or John the Baptist's title of him, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so now the disciples begin to see the real picture here. By his death, Jesus kills sin. By his resurrection, Jesus kills death. And this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15 when he taunts death by saying, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus removes fear, it restores mankind's opportunity to have peace with God. And then thirdly, forgiveness is offered. Forgiveness is offered. Look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.' And with that, he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.'" Now, there are a lot of questions about this passage, and I I don't want to lose the forest for the trees here, so I'm just going to try to hit the high points. But essentially what is happening here is Jesus is commissioning his disciples. They are being sent out to be ministers of reconciliation, reconciling man to God. In other words, what Jesus has been sent to perform, they are being sent to proclaim. And I think one of the things that this shows us, kind of startlingly so, is that forgiveness is not just a blanket reality for all. Forgiveness is not a de facto gift. It's not a right, it's not automatic, and it's not going to be applied to all. What this passage shows us is that some will be forgiven for sin and others will not. And so the question kind of lingers out there, why or how? Now, at first blush, it kind of looks like Jesus gives the disciples themselves the prerogative to make this determination. Uh, But upon fuller examination of the scriptures, we know that it is only through repentance for sin and faith in Jesus Christ that anyone is saved. In fact, when we go to the Gospel of Luke, and we see kind of how he describes these events... Uh, he brings a lot of clarity to, to this passage. In Luke 24, verse 46, it says this, He told them, this is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so we can see from this passage that the disciples are going to be commissioned to go and proclaim about what Jesus has done, and that forgiveness can be found by repentance and faith in Him, and they will be helped and equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. So that is what is amazing about this passage, that Jesus entrusts this ministry of proclamation to these guys, these disciples who ran away at the garden, these disciples who were cowering behind locked doors, these guys who had doubts and suspicions, and yet he calls them to this task and he empowers them by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. But friends, the, part, the point I want to really highlight here is this, that forgiveness is not the de facto gift. Let me illustrate it this way. Right now, our government is in the process of issuing stimulus checks to the public to kind of help mitigate the loss of income that many have experienced due to coronavirus. And they've said there's nothing that you have to do to get it. Uh, there's no application. There's no phone call to make it's just an automatic deposit it's just going to appear in your mailbox or in your account but my friends the forgiveness of god is different than a blanket distribution like this it is available to all but it's only going to be applied to some those who request it so forgiveness is a lot more like the alaskan pfd if you will than the federal stimulus that's coming In fact, John 1, verse 12, makes this very clear. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. My friends, you have to appropriate the work that Christ has done for you. You have to receive it through repentance and through faith. So, because of the resurrection, fear is removed. Peace is restored. Forgiveness is offered. And finally, reasonable faith is rewarded. Look now at verse uh, 24, John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, one of the things I love about the Scriptures is the cast of characters, if you will. Uh, They are real, relatable people, just like you and me. Their questions are our questions. Their struggles are our struggles. And Thomas, sometimes referred to as Doubting Thomas, is one of these great figures uh, in the Scriptures that it's really easy for us to identify with. It's almost as though God providentially places Thomas as one of the 12 disciples to sort of represent a certain kind of skeptic from the modern age, someone who needs needs hard, fast, empirical evidence in order to believe something as astounding as a resurrection. So Thomas says, I want to see, I want to touch. And what I think is really interesting about this is that this is not actually Thomas's natural disposition. We might say that this is his wounded disposition. Uh, as one of the 12 followers of Jesus, Thomas was a very devoted man. He was all in and he was fully convinced of the deity of Jesus. And we actually see this on display in an earlier chapter uh, in the Gospel of John, John 11. We find there an incident where Jesus wants to go and tend uh, to a friend of his who is sick and dying, and that man's name is Lazarus. And the problem was that Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was a little bedroom community just outside of Jerusalem. And this was a very difficult time for Jesus. His popularity was terrible in Jerusalem. They were feeling hostile towards him, so to go to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem was a huge threat and a huge risk nevertheless his love compels him to go visit his friend and when he announces this let's go to Bethany Thomas has a great reply that shows us his true character in John eleven sixteen, 16 it says this then Thomas also known as Didymus said to the rest of the disciples let us go that we may die with him in other words Thomas is a bold man he's loyal he's committed to Christ He's even willing to die alongside him, so convinced is he of, of, the messi- of Jesus' messianic claim. But when Jesus was killed, his death seemed to suggest that they had been wrong about Jesus. It seemed like the movement was over, and it appears to have created a great disillusionment in Thomas. In fact, I think it's telling that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples in the room uh, at the home the first time Jesus appeared to them. It seems like he's just off doing his own thing, like he's just leaving it all behind. So when the disciples remark to him that they have seen Jesus, Thomas is like, no, I am not going to be made a fool of again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And so Thomas makes what we might say is a very reasonable demand. I want proof. Let's look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Thomas came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what I love about this encounter is that, again, Thomas is, it's almost like he's acting for us. He's acting in our interests, on our behalf. He serves as like a representative for the modern man. He's demanding proofs. evidence that we ourselves want to see. He's our eyes on the situation. And I think the encouragement that this gives to us uh, as modern-day readers of the scriptures is that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's not a leap of faith. It's not a faith against reason or without reason. It's faith built upon reason. In fact, it's faith built upon evidence, eyewitness accounts, credible testimony, corroborating testimony, even differentiated testimony, transformation of disciples, and the martyrdom of nearly all of them. And so what we find in this passage and throughout the New Testament is compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And not only is there compelling evidence, there is compelling significance for you and for me. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, fear is removed from our temporal situation. We're maybe locked down and and behind closed doors for different reasons than the disciples, but because Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't have to fear these temporal things and these temporal threats that are going on around us. We have a hope that transcends this earthly experience. Because of the resurrection, fear is removed Peace is restored for our spiritual situation. Jesus has come and made a way that we can be at peace with a holy God. He has taken our sins into himself and killed them at the cross. Because of the resurrection, forgiveness is offered for our relational situation. God has made an initiation, He has initiated uh, forgiveness to us, and we but have to take and receive it through repentance and faith. And finally, Faith is rewarded. Reasonable faith is rewarded in our eternal situation. We can know that we are secure forever, based upon what Christ performed for us. I've been reading a very interesting book recently, titled uh, "The Christian Art of Dying" by Alan Verhey. So yeah, it's a real it's a real pick me up right now. Um, I felt like I had a lot of friends uh, recently here who have been trying to walk with loved ones through the final stages of life. And I thought, pastorally, I just want to be reading and helping people on this. So I bought this very serious book. And I kind of appreciated almost the comedic words of the author at the beginning. He said this, People have been dying for a while now. It started, I guess, with the first human being. And since then, the death rate has been right around 100%. (laughs) You can't argue with that. But my friends, here's the truth of the matter. In the resurrection of Jesus, we're introduced to the death of death, the end of death, the removal of its sting. And so I simply want to ask you a question. Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? If you do, rejoice rejoice in the resurrection because the resurrection is the basis and the precedent of your own bodily resurrection to come if you do not know jesus as your lord and savior then i would echo the words of jesus himself stop doubting and believe and so i want to close our time together this morning and i want to lead us in a prayer And I have in mind, especially those of you who have been hanging on to doubt or skepticism, and I want to invite you to believe on the basis of the evidence that we have seen here, to stop doubting and to believe, to repent of sin, and to show your faith in Jesus Christ, to receive the forgiveness that He has offered you. So I'm going to close with a prayer, and I want to invite you to know peace with God by praying this back to the Lord quietly where you are. Father, we thank you that you have seen our condition. You know that we are sinners. And though we have rebelled and wandered from you, you did not leave us to ourselves, but you made a way through the sacrifice of Christ that our sins could be punished in him and that we could have peace with you. So, Father, I repent of my sin. I express my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. I rejoice in his resurrection, knowing that means the end of sin and the end of death. And I rejoice to be a child of God. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We love you. Amen.